0: As a pastor, I've talked to a lot of folks who are discouraged by some of the events that are happening in our world and with all the polarization that's taken place. I think in this year of 2020, there have been some folks that have dealt with discouragement that might not have had to deal with it before. And recently, I had the opportunity to sit down with four folks who provide counseling to others and get their input on how do we deal with discouragement in our lives. Hopelessness and discouragement and depression, all those things are related and sometimes we get so low we just don't believe that we can get out of that deep dark hole.
1: Clinical depression will affect our functioning. So we will want to oversleep, overeat, we'll isolate and we'll pull away from life uh, as we know it our normal living, typical life. With situational depression you you're still functioning you're able to get up and go to work and you're on time for things and you might still hang out with your friends but you have just this sort of low feeling and and a feeling of sadness that's still there
0: the level of discouragement the level of loss i have a little thing in my office where if a person's going along in life and they have a loss event or events And in the pandemic, sometimes people are having a whole bunch of losses. I'll I'll draw a U and then I'll get back up. And this U, all the symptoms of loss and depression. And I know them all, you know, sadness, tearfulness, loss of self-esteem, appetite disturbance, sleep disturbance, difficulty concentrating, isolation tendencies, thoughts about escape that can be mild thoughts like just get in the car and drive to bakersfield or serious thoughts about maybe life's not worth living that sort of thing they're all in that you the depth of that you and the length of it is always a function of how attached were you to what you lost with regards to the word discourage it it has a sucking the life out of you kind of a feel if somebody's encouraging you that's like pumping resources back in. In the church, we try to help people find hope and healing in the person of Jesus Christ. And when someone feels hopeless or or they're just depressed, uh, they also don't feel loved or lovely. And so we try to remind them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139, and that God loves them and God wants to be the source of their hope and their help to get out of that.
1: Here are some things that could be helpful with a friend who is discouraged or feeling sad. We can encourage them. All of us have the gift of encouragement, so to encourage, but I think really it starts with empathizing with them first and not minimizing their sadness.
0: It's a paradox of when I'm discouraged, my main focus is on myself. And one of the things that can help is me trying to work at getting the focus off of myself and onto somebody else. I can feel really discouraged, very, very down. But if I try and take my eyes off of just what my experience is of that moment, and I wonder what so-and-so is experiencing, how can I speak a word of encouragement to them? How can I be a part of their journey to help lift their load? It doesn't take away those components that are heavy on our heart, but it does make it easier to walk through the day. If you're wrestling with sadness, discouragement, I'm gonna say, do two things. Connect it to loss. Figure out what is it that you're attached to that you're missing, that you don't have, that you once had, and that will pay dividends. The second thing is put that loss in a larger perspective. If you zoom in on sadness, it fills up the screen, and it can sort of take over But if you zoom out and facing the loss and having courage, but also recognizing what remains, what do you still have? And finding ways to be grateful for that. I mean, that's a very biblical idea, counting your blessings and being thankful.
2: Aren't those good? Isn't that good. That's just so. I'm so thankful for those videos, for those people that come together to bring um, their wisdom, their life experience to share it with all of us. And for uh, Jordan, who's probably here, who put it all together. And uh, way to go, Jordan. Way to go, Jordan. Um, uh, if these videos, like this, this was so good, man. This is so good. Uh, if if this or any of the others, or even the ones that are to come as we continue in this series, if, if, if you're like, man, I just need to be reminded of some of the things we've talked about. I need, I need to hear this again. You can. Um, if you go to at calvoye underscore on Instagram, this video will be posted tomorrow. All the ones from the past weeks have already been posted. You can go back and look at this. If you're like, I don't have time for a whole sermon, so I'll watch a five-minute video. This is a great option. This is a great option. Um I'm so thankful for these videos, man. They're so good. Well, as you can tell, um, we are talking about depression, despair, discouragement tonight. And we're continuing our series, uh, Hope for the Heavy Heart. And before we go any further, I kind of want to echo what what Bert said, which you probably maybe don't recognize who Bert is, but he's a great guy. He said some good things. Um, I'm just going to echo something he said in here in, in the video, actually, that I think it's so true, and I think that some of you need to hear and take to heart. You are a child of God. He loves you where you are, He knows and empathizes with you in your pain, He knows it intimately. Friends, you have a sympathetic high priest. We have a sympathetic high priest who is with you and his name is Jesus. He too has walked the road of sorrow and suffering. He has walked it. And you, whether now, right now, or maybe in the past or maybe in the future, if you're walking it, whenever you find yourself on that road, know you're not alone. He is there with you. He's on it with you. Amen. 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 As Brian Howard has done uh, over the past uh, two weeks, I just also want to reiterate um, that as we explore some of the biblical perspective on this topic of depression and despair, uh, this is not something um, that is only for the person who's in it right now. Like if you're if you're here, if you're sitting here, or maybe you're watching and. and This isn't something that you, either now or in the past, have acutely experienced in life that doesn't mean it's useless information for you. Not at all. Not at all. Especially if we're going to live in love like Jesus, if we're going to carry out the great commandment and care for one another. This may be for someone else in your life. Someone sitting next to you, a family member, a friend, maybe even yourself years from now. Whatever the case, this is what I hope this is what I've prayed, that that we all, that we all would have a bit more vision for the complexities that are part of the human experience and the reality of God, the reality of God's order in the midst of those complexities, God's, God's insight, God's superiority over all of it, because he is, he is superior, he is in charge, he is above it all. And he's on your side. So the Bible's not silent about despair or depression. Maybe, I don't know, some people have like gone to church their whole life and they think it is because they never hear about it. But that's not the way we want to operate. We want to talk about what the Bible talks about. We want to talk about what matters and what the Bible and what God declares matters. And, and let's be straightforward. The Bible is not silent on despair or depression. Not hardly. It's all over the pages of that thing. There's quite a bit of despair in the Bible because it is a natural outcome of a broken and fallen creation. I mean, it's like like when we look, okay, I'm going to list people off. It's like a who's who of biblical characters that have wrestled with despair and depression. we got Moses, King Saul, King David. You know, two weeks ago, Brian Howard talked about him in the cave in Adullam and, and, and what he wrote in there, what he was experiencing. There's more, All, all like many of, of David's Psalms. In fact, the whole book of Psalms, the, the huge book of Psalms, one third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. One third of them. Many of the Old Testament prophets, such as Elijah, Jeremiah, like, were mired in this stuff, despairing not just to the mission that God had given them, but to life itself. The very living. And then we've got well-known Christians throughout the centuries. We've got St. Teresa of Avila, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, John Wesley, C.S. Lewis, Thomas Merton, Mother Teresa, Rich Mullins, Brendan Manning, Kathleen Norris, Henry Nouwen. These are all people who have written very decisively about their struggle with depression, anxiety, um, despair, really ultimately despair. I say this, I, I point this out because I think there's a truth that needs to be heard for people tonight. Despair or depression is not the mark of a faithless Christian. I'll say it again despair or depression is not the mark of a faithless Christian. Someone needs to hear it tonight. Depression and faithful Christian are not antonyms, they're not contradictory. Tonight we're looking at the biblical character, uh, who f- forty-two chapters are devoted to his experience of despair and his wrestling with the implications of it. It's the book of Job, and it's long, <laughs> and it is quite a bit to unravel. We're not doing all of it, don't worry. I'm not going to sit up here and read forty-two chapters of poetic. That'd be, that's like you remember like a sophomore year of high school when when like the teachers like oh, we're going to read Hamlet, and you're like oh okay, and then you get into it and you're like oh my. <laughs> like This is so much. If you've ever read Job, maybe you felt similar. Uh, I know I have, but I, it's actually been even harder over the years. I've really had a hard time with the book of Job, to be honest with you. I've, I've read it multiple times, and and often heard it so simplified that, that I had trouble grasping it. And so in preparing for this, I actually read through it multiple times. I was like, Lord, I need, I need to understand this. And I, and I, I struggle to. And ultimately, at the depths of it, the simple explanations that I've heard in the past don't suffice. There's more going on there. There's more going on in this world than a simple explanation for why things happen and how things are the way they are. In specific small instances, there's obviously a grand meta narrative, and that matters. But when it comes down to individual lives, we can't we can't make simple f- simple conclusions that just write things off. Reading the Book of Job, it's poetic, so that also adds some challenges. So w- tonight we're not reading all of it. Don't worry, <laughs> we're not reading all of it. We're just going to skim the surface, like seriously. Which kind of totally it really pains me because that's what's happened to me in the past. But how do I deal with 42? Are we going to read? No, we're not. So we're going to skim the surface. But Job is a good place to start. It's a good place to get a reference point on despair and depression. And so I encourage you. And this is actually like a faithful encouragement. (laughs) Like this is me having faith in the spirit of the Lord to guide you. Read the book of Job. Take time in it. Be confused by it. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. But don't ignore it just because it's hard. Don't ignore it just because it's hard. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Job chapter 3. That's where we're going to start. We're going to start at verse 3. Job chapter 3, verse 3. Kind of set the scene for what we're about to read. Job has just lost everything. He's just lost everything. His family, his health, his wealth, all of it. He's lost all of it. And in his despair, all he can think about is death. All he can think about is death and why. Why? Why? Why should he have been born at all when such despair should eventually befall him? So read along with me. Job chapter three, starting at verse three. Let the day of my birth be erased. In the night I was conceived, let that day be turned to darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high. And let no light shine on it. Verse 8. Let those who are experts at cursing, those who, who could, whose cursing could rouse Leviathan, curse that day. Let its morning stars remain dark. Let its hope for light be in vain. May it never see the morning light. Curse that day for failing to shut my mother's womb, for letting me be born to see all this trouble. Why wasn't I born dead? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why was I laid in my mother's lap? Why did she nurse me at her breast? I had, had I died at birth, I would now be at peace. I would be asleep and, and at rest. For 16, why Wasn't I buried like a stillborn child, like a baby who never lives to see the light? For in death the wicked cause no trouble, and the weary are at rest. Even captives are at ease in death, with no guards to curse them. Rich and poor, they're both there, and the slave is free from his master. Oh, why give light to those in misery, and life to those who are bitter? They long for death, and it won't come. They search for death more eagerly than for a hidden treasure. They're filled with joy when, when they finally die and rejoice when they find the grave. Why is life given to those with no future? Those God has surrounded with difficulties I cannot eat for sighing. My groans pour out like water. What I always feared has happened to me. What I've dreaded has come true. I. I have no peace, I have no quietness, I have no rest, only trouble comes. That's not pleasant, (laughs) right, man. That's not pleasant. I don't even like reading it. (laughs) I don't even like reading it. But how much more so for the person who's actually feeling it? The person who's actually feeling those things, thinking in those ways. For some of you here tonight, some of you may be watching, that sounds familiar. It echoes what you have felt before on those darkest of days in your life. I think for all of us to to think such things, to comprehend that that could be the case, or that it is the case maybe for you, it's overwhelming. I think for all of us, such hopelessness is overwhelming. We don't have the first clue what to do with it. We don't have the first clue how to respond to it. Whether it's you or your friend, it's just... Oh, all we can do a sigh alongside. It seems so much. So I just want to say, as we walk through this tonight, I don't have the silver bullet. I don't. I don't have some infallible prayer to make it all go away. Or some formula that will, will remove all the suffering, all your suffering. Like if only you execute it just right. I, I don't. I don't have that simple answer. And as we see in the book of Job, there's not a definitive answer to why. But there is hope. There is hope and there is help. So first thing I just want to drop and put out there, this truth that, is, that needs to be taken home. And that's this. The feeling of depression is not indicative of your character. The feeling of depression is not indicative of your character. If you are feeling depressed or in despair... It's not revealing your virtue. It's not an indictment of your faith or your love for God. To feel depression or despair does not mean that you are wrong, but that you are a part of the natural reality of living in a broken and fallen world. Looking at Job, we see that in the very beginning, it is God Himself who attests to Job's character. In, in the first chapter, Chapter 1, verse 8, God says, there is no one on earth like him. He's talking about Job. He says, there's no one on earth like him. He is upright, a man who fears me and shuns evil. That's Job. Job is righteous in his pursuit of what is good and his love for God. Yet it is this same man who God says loves me, pursues me, is righteous, is upright, who, who's written what we just read in chapter three, who is overwhelmed, his soul crushed and peaceless, his experience, his current re- reality is just utter despair. It's the same man. So for all of us here tonight, we need to take this home. Whether you're struggling with it right now, you need to hear this. Or if someone else, if maybe if you're not, but someone else you know is, you need to hear this and you need to uphold this truth. That we cannot just off the cuff conclude, oh, you're depressed? (laughs) Well, you're doing everything wrong. You must be doing everything wrong. You know what? If you just did everything uh, different, if you just stopped doing everything wrong, it would all go away. It's not that simple. What the first three chapters of Job show us is that it's not that simple. Job was a righteous man, yet he was not immune to the downward spiral of depression. At the root, despair is a feeling. We've talked about this before. Feelings are indicators; they're like a flag system, right? They like as a flag that gets raised and provides you with information about your experience and your response to what is happening. It's a feeling. In Philippians four, we read this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, often uh, we hear this, and I think for some of you, you've heard this, and, and it's actually been painful to hear such a phrase. You hear this, and especially if you're struggling to feel joy. Man, the enemy likes to use things like this and twist it, twist it, corrupt it to push you deeper. We read rejoice, and we think it's a command to feel joy that's not what it is. It's not a command to feel anything. See, my friends, we need to respond to feelings with actions. What we see throughout scripture is that we need to respond to feelings with actions. And so this isn't a command to feel anything, but a command to do something, to rejoice, to sing praise, to say what is true. It's practically to come together here to church and worship God. It's not a command to feel something, but a command to do something. Paul continues in Philippians four, he goes into verse six and he says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Notice he says, don't be anxious. That's hard to hear for some people, right? That's hard to hear from like everybody He's saying don't be trapped in that feeling of anxiousness. It's saying don't don't stay anxious, but notice Paul does not then write don't feel anxious instead feel excited. That's not what he says. He does not prescribe for us to manufacture a certain feeling but to respond to the feeling of anxiousness with a certain action. We're not called to manufacture feelings. We're called to respond to feelings with action. He says, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then verse seven, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you feel anxious, do something. Pray, be reminded of what you have to be thankful for. Present these things to God, and the peace of God will guard you. It doesn't say that the peace of God will eradicate anxiety or that you will only feel peace from now on, but that, the, the, that God's peace will guard you. It will protect you. It will keep you from the cliff of being controlled by that feeling. Now, if you're like, come on, we're supposed to be talking about depression. You're talking about anxiety. I get it. Yes, yes. But this applies to depression and to other feelings. We respond to feelings with action. We respond to feelings with action. So looking at Job, he's feeling terrible, man. He's feeling terrible. He's lost everything and is so overcome by this depression that he, he resents having ever been born. That's serious. That's, that's a deep U-shaped. But what ends up happening is Job has these three friends who come and reflect upon his suffering and postulate Why? Why? Why is Job in such a place, and what does he need to do about it? And so, again, this is so painful. This is hard. Go read the book of Job, okay? (laughs) Like, maybe take a couple weeks if you need to, but this is hard. I'm going to do it, though, because we're not going to read all of it. So I'm going to summarize, like, 30 chapters of the book of Job. (laughs) All right? (laughs) This is terrible. All right, 30 chapters of the book of Job. You ready? It's all this poetic dialogue between Job and his friends. These three friends who come and and are there uh, to help him. I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell um, what their true. Maybe they're intending that, but it doesn't. It doesn't really work out that way. They're they're just wondering why. Why is Job like this? And then saying, you know, Job, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. And so it's thirty chapters of poetic dialogue between Job and his, and his friends and they look at Job and they simplify God's justice and action to the point that it doesn't reflect reality. The reality we see, the reality that is evident in the life of Job, their explanations don't account for what is actually happening. As they have these dialogues back and forth with Job, he, Job, transitions from complaining to God, being like, oh, the Lord, why? To accusing God. And so the back and forth is like his friends going, Job, Your life is a disaster. And the simple math shows that God is just, so you must be bad. And Job is like, guys, come on. The things you're assuming about me aren't true. And he gets to a place, the conversation pushes him to a place where he's like, so it must be God who's bad then. It's God who's bad. It's God who screwed all the things up. He's the one who deserves what I'm getting. He's the one who deserves to be cursed. He's the one who deserves to get called out and accused. Why is it like this? He just keeps saying, why? Why is it like this? And like I said, I'm this is 30 chapters. I'm super simplifying. It's terrible. But job, job, job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Job, I wonder... Okay, sorry, I'm going to get distracted. Job is actually uh, in this like back and forth through this whole thing. He's just wrestling. Like he's just wrestling back and forth. His emotions are all over the place. And he's trying to reconcile what he's experiencing, what he's feeling with what he's known in the past and what he thinks and how he's just all over the place. He's so conflicted. He's like, God, I, I know God is good. I know God is just, but then why? Why? You must have no wisdom, God, I guess. You must have no wisdom. You have no idea what you're doing. You shouldn't shouldn't allow such things, God. How dare you? He's just this wave tossed in the sea, the whim of his emotions and feelings, just completely divided in heart and mind. And that just fuels his despair all the more, that division. I think some of you know what that's like. These three friends, they're not helping. They're just making things worse, heaping shame on him and and driving him deeper into this writhing until eventually a fourth friend, a young man who has been standing by this whole time and just watching the older men argue about things that he thought were out of his league or that he shouldn't speak about. And this young man stands up and he speaks with some wisdom, saying, my summary, like, what if there's more to suffering than purely punishment? What if there's more to it than this? You know, for you and I, that's like working all things for the good of those who love him. For him, he's like, maybe maybe you guys, you're, you're arguing about all this, you're, you're suffering through this, and maybe you're thinking of this all too narrow-mindedly. Perhaps there's more to why and how God runs this universe than the simple math you're proposing. And it's here, at this point, that God speaks up. God steps down and he responds to Job's accusations. And this is how his response begins. This is God responding to Job through a storm, through cloud. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. And then he goes on for several chapters, asking Job these questions, like where does light come from? Where is the path to the source of light? Where is the home of the east wind? Can you direct the movement of the stars, Job? Do you know the laws of the universe? Can you use them to regulate the earth? Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct? Who gives intuition to the mind and instinct to the heart? My simple paraphrase of all of it is this, that God has wisdom and perspective that transcends our own perspective and experience of this world. The God of all creation, the one beyond and before time and space, has wisdom and perspective that transcends. It's beyond, it's higher, it's incomparable to our own perspective and experience of this world. God responds to Job, and unfortunately for our, my, inquisitive, controlling mind, God does not undercut the realities of the world he has created and the suffering that has befallen it into a simple formula that, that explains why Job suffered. God doesn't defend his reasoning for allowing it to happen. God receives Job's complaint. He doesn't reject the man, but he makes clear that Job, the creation, is so finite that to accuse the creator is silly. I was thinking about how to understand this or how to make this make sense. And this is just, this is an imperfect example. It's not even comparable in scale. But I, I was thinking about my son. He's two and a half years old. And like, it's one thing for him. This is things that have happened in recently. It's one thing for him to complain to me, to, to whine about me not giving him knives to play with. Like he sees daddy using them, he sees mom use them, they're shiny, they're pointy, looks awesome. He wants to use them. He wants to play with them. It's one thing for him to, to complain or, or whine to me about that, and I'm, it's one thing. But it's another thing, and this is absurd, and this is not what we would think or expect because it is absurd. It's another thing for him to accuse me, this two-and-a-half-year-old, to accuse me, his dad, of being withholding or hateful towards him for keeping that delightful, shiny, shiny, pointy thing from him. And it might not just be evil things. I mean, like he loves ice cream and he would just eat a whole gallon of ice cream. If he could, maybe, I don't know if he could get through a whole gallon. That's a lot, but he would, he loves it. It's one thing for him to whine and complain to me about not giving him more ice cream. It's another thing for him to accuse me of being hateful of being harmful to him, of being destructive towards him. He doesn't understand. He isn't on my level. He doesn't get it. The reason why is more complex than he has the ability to comprehend in that moment. The underlying question of why. Why may you be wrestling through despair or depression that eats at us? I think for many people, that drives you to deeper things, to worse mindsets. The enemy likes to use this stuff, to twist it, to push you down, to push you deeper. But the underlying question of why is worthy of being asked. It's worthy of being asked. It's worthy of being wrestled with. But there is a difference between complaining and accusing. There's a difference between not understanding and not trusting. As I said before, one third of the Psalms are of lament and all but one of them. That's a lot of Psalms, a third of the Psalms, all of those lament Psalms, all but one of them. And they conclude. They're questioning, they're wrestling, they're complaining, they they go through all of that. They're not understanding. And they conclude with a declaration, an affirmation of what God says about himself, of what is true. Remember, the Bible makes clear. We respond to feelings with action. And that is what the psalmists are doing. They're bringing their feelings to the Lord and then responding to those feelings with action. They're going, I don't feel right now like you are good, God. I don't yet see your deliverance, but I will speak it. I will respond to this feeling with, uh, with action and say that you are good because it's true. I will declare that you are just because you have said you are. As I said, I don't have a silver bullet. I don't have some formulaic solution to never feeling depressed again. But what we see in the Psalms, what we see the psalmist doing is something that might be helpful in keeping those feelings from running wild in our lives. So I want to give you seven practical tips for the person feeling despair, depression. And the first relates to what we see in the Psalms. So here's the first one. Don't let depression have the final word. Talk back to it. How often do we just listen to the emotions instead of speaking back to them? When those emotions start to come, know that you have the power and the authority to speak back to them, to speak truth to them. In 2 Corinthians, 10.5, 10.5, we read, demolish. we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Brian Howard preached on this a few weeks ago. This, As depression and despair speak to you through your emotions, speak back the truths and promises of God. Gather around you people who will help you speak back if you don't think you can do it. People who would declare the realities of God, the truths that you are a son or daughter of God, cherished, fearfully and wonderfully made, that you have purpose, that your life has purpose. There is trajectory in what you are going through. It is not aimless. God is in charge. He is in control. He is good and he loves you. He loves you. So that's the first one. Don't let depression have the last word. Number two. If you're a friend or family member of someone wrestling with depression, don't be like Job's first three friends, (laughs) all right? And how do you not be like Job's first three friends? Well, short and sweet, I think Henry Nouwen sums it up well when he writes this, this quote. When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives means the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm, tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in our hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. So how do we be a good friend? Accept the uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable, accept the uncomfortable reality that you probably can't fix this for them. But you can walk with them through it. You can be with them so that they're not alone. You can gently and faithfully remind them who they are in Christ and what he says about them and what he says about himself. Tip number three, (laughs) physical needs. Your basic physical needs, they matter, all right? They matter. They talked about it in the video. In First Kings nineteen, like an angel of God comes to Elijah and says, "Like, look, eat some food, drink some water, get some rest. It'll be good for you." <laughs> like these things matter. So pay attention to it. Are you eating well? What's your diet look like? Are you getting the sleep you need? When's the last time you exercise? And I don't mean like, you know, like a super intense interval exercise. It could just be a walk. Like go on a walk when you wake up and at the end of the day, go out into God's creation. Let your body just release some of this stuff. Don't bring your phone. Just walk and look at the trees. Feel the wind. See the stars. It's good. Next, relational realities. Relationships that are fractured or broken, like like a difficult family of origin story, or maybe a lack of community, or perhaps uh, you have suffered through a traumatic experience. All these things that can contribute To being overwhelmed with the feeling of depression, that loss that was talked about. And I'll lump in here professional help in this category. Maybe there's a place for professional help. Our care pastors have a plethora of vetted uh, and trusted licensed therapists who love the Lord and could be instrumental in God's healing of your relational or emotional wounds. If you want a a recommendation or if you want info on that, you can come talk to Sarah and I Um, at the end of service. I think she's going to talk about our minister on call line. You can call that. You can go on the website right now on your phone, look up care ministry and email them. Uh, Get help if you need it. Get help. Number five, media consumption. We have to spend time assessing this stuff. We have to. What are you putting into your brain? Brian Howard, again, talked about this. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So if the stuff you're watching, the stuff you're listening to, the the stuff you're reading, and pay attention to it. Pay attention to it. Don't be surprised that it is impacting you, impacting your perspective on this life and the emotions you're experiencing. What media are you consuming? Number six, spiritual realities. How is your connection with the Lord? How's your time connecting with him in his word, through prayer, through fasting, through communing, through gathering together with the body of believers? I I just want to caution here. Your standing with the Lord is fixed. If you've put your faith in Jesus, if you've professed him as your Lord and Savior and believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, what that means for your life, He loves you. He cherishes you. You are in the family. So what you do, you're not earning his love. You're not earning his love, but it may be helping you. So I want to encourage you, go back. We just finished a a sermon series. We did six or seven, I don't remember. Uh, Sermons about rhythm or ruin. What are the rhythms of life that God has given us that we might thrive? Have the abundant life that he intends for us. Those things may be helpful, stepping back and looking at what actions can you take that may help, that may redirect your thoughts and your feelings towards what is good and right and noble and praiseworthy and true and admirable. Number seven, at what point is medication the right option? You know, for some people in this life, they are going to have to deal with depression on a neurochemical level. And I want to speak clearly here. We should not consider medication as a lack of faith or some form of contempt for God because it's not. Not necessarily. It doesn't need to be. Man, you break your leg, you'll use some crutches, right? Stay off it, let it heal. When it's well enough and you don't need more any the crutch anymore, you move on. Or perhaps it's such that that you'll need that cane. You'll need that crutch for the rest of your life. Either way, there's no shame in that, right? The same is true with mental health. The same is true. Medication can be a tool. It can be a common grace that can be helpful for various things. And if you're at that place of considering medication, I want to encourage you to talk to the Lord about it. Don't leave him out of this. Talk to him about it. Because medication can be taken in faith. It can be taken in faith and be God-glorifying, or medication can be taken outside of faith as a power grab to try to control our own lives, to try and control what's going on. So talk to the Lord about it. Ask him, what is it that you would have me do? Is this a tool that would be helpful in this season? Is it wise? Those people in your life who love him those people in your life who know your your story, your place, ask them as well. Invite wise counsel into this. Is this the right time, Lord? Or is, is it not the right next step at this time? So those are the seven. Those are just a few practical tips. And they aren't the silver bullet or one and done solution, but, but maybe one or two of them can be helpful. Alright, uh, we're gonna look, we're gonna finish it out here, okay? Job 42, God's done all this stuff, well, said all this stuff. And Job responds. And this is probably like one of the shorter things in the whole book. There are all these long poetic things and then God speaks up and finally Job is quiet. And he uses just a few words. He says this, this is his response. I know that you can do anything. He's talking to God. I know that you can do anything. And no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's I. I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job responds so humbly, so decisively. He takes action. Job repents of his accusations against God. He says, I spoke of things far beyond me, things I know nothing about. In his depression, Job had turned inward, consumed by the feeling of despair and the misery of his own experience. He struggled to think beyond himself, beyond his experience or his perspective. That's one of the hazards of depression. One of the hazards is that it baits us to turn inward. Job was humbled. He beheld God. God lifted his eyes from within, from his reasoning and his experience. God raised his eyes from within himself. Job was like, whoa. (laughs) Okay. Depression tends to encourage us to focus on ourselves. We go inside and get kind of self absorbed, but not always in a self righteous way. We can become absorbed in self abasement, self loathing, turning inward more and more to a place where you will not see light, where you will not find help the answer is not somewhere buried within us or buried within understanding or or our family of origin or whatever there may be help in those areas but those are not the solutions to the brokenness of this world the solution is found in christ it's found in jesus in the christian life we are invited into this beautiful self forgetfulness to turn all that we are over to the creator all the good all the bad and instead be defined by the life and love of Jesus. We have a heavenly father, my friends, that can provide for us. And because of that, we don't have to be absorbed with ourselves. Ben, if you guys want to make your way back up. Hebrews 4.16 says this. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have a heavenly father who loves us and cares about our pain. Who weeps with us in our hardship and he says, come, come to the throne of grace. He weeps with us. He longs for us to come. Come throne that used to be a throne of judgment, a throne of condemnation for a sinner like me and you. Because of what Jesus has done, because of what he's done, uh, uh, this place that ought to be a place that we are absolutely terrified to go is now a throne of grace, a throne of mercy, a place where God says, child, come, come. Come and ask, and He will supply what we need in our times of challenge and of difficulty. He'll provide. God will provide what we need to navigate this life. From beginning to end, He will provide that we can make it. And there's purpose in it. It is not accidental, there is trajectory in it. And the frustrating reality that God doesn't tell Job why he went through this, that God doesn't promise to tell us either. He doesn't promise to tell why we're going through specific sufferings other than the greater meta-narrative that you are being conformed to the image of Christ. What we do know unequivocally is that rest will come. Rest will come. It may not come next week or next year. Complete freedom from a heavy heart may not come until we are freed from this mortal suffering and united with Christ in heaven, but it will come. It will come. However distant deliverance from your despair may be, in the time between now and its arrival, there is help and hope and partnership with God. Justice will prevail. Peace will triumph. Every tear will be wiped away. Every life that has been commissioned and imbued with value can achieve that glorious eternal purpose for which it was created. Your life has purpose. You were placed on this earth for this time and this occasion. It wasn't on accident. There's purpose to it. There's value to it. Whatever you're in, there's trajectory, it's going somewhere. It's doing something. It's not useless. We may not understand it, but it is. You have purpose. No matter what you're feeling, you have purpose. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen? I want to leave us with this, this final word. Let's let Jesus have the final word. He says in John 16, he says this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because Jesus has overcome it. Let's go before him now. The throne is open, it's ready. If you need to kneel, if you need to stand, if you need to lay down, if you need to sit in your chair, whatever it is, let nothing hinder you from coming to that throne. There's mercy and grace. God welcomes you. He says, come child, and I'll help. So go to him. Amen.